The Second Crusade has failed, but its end will open the door to the Plantagenets, that brilliant, avaricious, rebellious, murderous family that will dominate the history of Western Europe for a century to come. Here's their story, so riveting that we still are fascinated by it 900 years later. Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Season two, episode five, God, Fate, and the Stars. After Henry outmaneuvered King Stephen at Malmesbury, England started pondering the idea that perhaps there really was something to this energetic Plantagenet. Stephen loyalists began to consider switching sides. Henry, characteristically fast and smart, made his way across the countryside, collecting newfound support everywhere he went, vastly aided by his trump card, his ability to grant lands across the channel. The Earl of Leicester, Stephen's man up to now, was certainly intrigued. He brought thirty castles with his vow of fealty to the young Plantagenet lord. The handwriting was on the wall for the aging king. Quick intelligence, youthful courage, and energy were combined to race past him, straight toward his throne. Perhaps there are some months in some years that are marked by God or fate, the stars or the heavens, for significant events. August 1153 was such a month. On the seventeenth day, Stephen's son and heir, Eustace, died. It was a complete shock, sweeping away Henry's only serious rival to inherit the English throne. Eustace would leave mere fingerprints on history. A little older than Henry, equally headstrong, he wasn't loved by his contemporaries. The chroniclers at Peterborough Abbey, who saw and recorded the grim events of the anarchy, called him an evil man who levied heavy taxes, even, heaven forfend, on monks and bishops. They say that Eustace, annoyed over his finances, was at the Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds on the day in question, not to pray, but to pillage stealing the local harvest which represented months of hard, hard work, along with the prospect of surviving the coming winter. That night, he sat down to a medieval favorite, a meal of roasted eels. Soon afterwards, he was quite dead. One legend says that he strangled on his dinner. He was twenty-three years old. No one had seen it coming. Whatever took him, men of the day saw the wrath of God in it. His death ripped the heart out of his sixty-year-old father. Across the channel, on the very day Eustace died, Eleanor went into labor. She had given Louis Capet only daughters, and even the girls had come slowly. Now. Married little more than a year, 
she must have laughed out loud when her midwives handed her a boy baby, who was promptly named William after a full array of his forebears, including the Conqueror and ten Dukes of Aquitaine. By November, less than a year after Henry braved the English Channel on the Feast of the Three Kings, it was over for the House of Blois in England. Stephen met Henry at Winchester, the old capital that had seen the faces of English kings from the days of Alfred the Great. Second only to London in size, the site of the royal treasury, Winchester had been rather sobered by a terrible fire ten years back. But it remained a magnificent place. It had its cathedral, its almshouse, its watermill, its six Roman roads, and its market, dating back to the dawn of British commerce. Glory clung to its old walls, and it still drew everyone involved in war, religion, government, or trade. Now Stephen and Henry met there to end two decades of war in England. There would be no more violence, no more ruin. Mercenary archers and knights would be told to go home. The document the two men signed said, King Stephen first acknowledged, before the assembled barons, earls, and other magnates, the hereditary right which Henry, the Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine, and Count of Anjou, had in the Kingdom of England through his mother's family. And the Duke generously conceded that the king should hold the kingdom for the rest of his life if he wished, provided, however, that the king himself the bishops and other magnates, should bind themselves by an oath that the duke, if he survived, should succeed to the kingdom peacefully and without denial. As for Henry and Eleanor, God, fate, the heavens, and the stars shimmered at their backs. Their energy, their daring, their passion, their sheer luck had won it all. Each of us has our marvelous times, the years we can look back on in harder days, remembering what it was like to stand atop one of the summits of life. Perhaps Eleanor and Henry felt that way as the delightful year of 1154 spilled out its seasons. The two of them rarely seem contented people, but even they must have enjoyed themselves in those happy weeks and months. With the succession settled, peace made, the horrors of the twenty-year English Civil War began to ebb. Farmers could plant fields and birth lambs, with fair certainty that their sweated labors would pay off. Houses could be re-roofed, without incessant fear that the next swaggering company of knights would burn them. Traders could lead packhorses from inland market towns to waiting ships that carried wool one way, gold the other. People who had been afraid for twenty terrible years could begin to calm themselves and feel hope for the future. As early as January, the lords of England came to snowy Oxford to do homage to Henry as the acknowledged heir to the throne. They now owed him service and loyalty. He owed them protection. Eleanor, 
who so recently had turned her back on life as the Queen of France, was free to contemplate the entirely happy prospect of one day becoming the Queen of England. Life overflowed with promise. Eleanor spent the early months of 1154 working as Henry's regent in Anjou, a job that must have pleased her with its bustle, its petitions, its opportunities to settle small conflicts before they became bigger. When her busy husband rejoined her after weeks spent tearing down illegal castles and settling contested land titles, a product of the confusion of the Civil War, Eleanor became pregnant again in sweet June. Their first baby, little William Plantagenet, not yet a year old, reached for toys and played with his toes. She waited out the first anxious months of this new pregnancy, when any hour might bring a dreaded show of blood on bed linens, but day after day passed calmly. The family's peace was about to be broken, but it wouldn't be a miscarriage that did it. Instead, a messenger raced down the corridors with the breathless, riveting news that King Stephen had died. The cause was said to be uncontrollable bloody flux, which we would probably diagnose as terminal colon cancer. He was just 60 and not known to be in poor health, although the past year or two had certainly taken their toll. The treaty Stephen had signed at Winchester, the oath sworn at Oxford, now applied. Henry Plantagenet, 21 years old, was King of England, Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine, and Count of Anjou. He might be descended from the bastard son of a tanner's daughter. He might be the son of an Angevin devil and a harpy. He might be married to the most notorious woman in Christendom. It didn't matter. He'd been away on the other side of the channel when he got word. There was one worrisome month spent waiting for the weather to lighten enough for boats to set out from the Norman coast, England without a king. But Henry's perpetual luck held. After a channel crossing so vicious that even old-time sailors were reduced to nauseated terror, Henry rode into London, vigorously alive. He was about to launch the longest and arguably most colorful dynasty ever to sit on the English throne, one that would endure until time and rot finally brought it down ten generations later. As the high tide of the Christmas season of 1154 commenced, Henry and Eleanor, wed with so little pomp, were crowned with as much medieval splendor as could be contrived at war-weary Westminster Abbey. The English coronation ceremony was already nearly two centuries old, every aspect of it designed to link the new king to the power of heaven and the acclaim of his people. Henry was presented to the assembly in the cathedral, before whom he publicly swore his oath to uphold English and church law. The Archbishop of Canterbury then anointed him with holy oil, dressed him in the robes of the state, placed the German-made crown of solid gold on his head, and handed him the orb and scepter, 
majestic insignia of English kings. He swore on his life the magnificent royal oaths that he would protect the church, preserve his lands, do justice, and suppress evil. The new king was then lifted to men's shoulders and carried to the throne, where he received the personal oaths of fealty from bishops, nobles, and clergy. Under the echoing stone vault of the cathedral, knights hammered their swords on their shields, shouting, Vivat Rex! Vivat! Vivat! The king lives! He lives! He lives! And for the first time in the history of England, a queen, Eleanor of Aquitaine, was granted the same coronation honors, anointed and crowned at Henry's side. The new royals had been married little more than two and a half years. He had won control of a third of Western Europe in 30 months. Five years before, she had been mired in the scandal of Antioch. Now, she gazed upon the vast horizons of the Plantagenet Empire. Everyone who had mocked her as a barren field cursed by God knew of her healthy baby son, with a second very possibly on the way. She was at the very pinnacle, beautiful, powerful, rich, lustily mated, former Queen of France, now Queen of England, Duchess of Aquitaine and Normandy, Countess of Poitou and Anjou, envied, desired, revered. Her educated contemporaries may well have turned to their copies of that perennial medieval bestseller, The Consolation of Philosophy. Its author, Annicus Manlius Bothius, by name, had been a wealthy, cultured 6th-century Roman senator and territorial governor. The emperor of Rome would jovially ask after him. Fellow Romans admired his skill in translating from the Greek. He had the joy of marrying well and witnessing the equally glorious rise of his two sons. But at the peak of his career, caught out on the wrong side of a political dispute, he was imprisoned, stripped of his titles, stripped of his estates, and then ultimately either beheaded or clubbed to death by the same emperor who'd formally invited him to dinner. As Bothius shivered and paced in his cell, struggling to comprehend what had happened to his life, he wrote what he would call his consolation, a dialogue between an embittered Bothius and the eternal figures of wise philosophy and maddening, indifferent fortune. The most riveting image from the book was the Wheel of Fortune, an idea entirely familiar to us today, and one which captivated literate people of Eleanor's time. O Fortuna, drunken scholars would roar one day, beating their fists on the scarred old refectory tables. O Fortuna, velut luna, O Fortune, that monster toying with men, friendly one day, dashing them on the rocks the next, like the moon always changing, always waxing, always waning. Now Eleanor herself was riding the great wheel upward. 
she had to know the unarguable rules that accompanied the ride. Rise up if you like, Fortune told Bothias. Ride my wheel to its top. But remember that it's my nature to be fickle, and so my wheel is always turning. Yes, rise up on my wheel if you like, but don't cry to me when you are carried down again. The magnificent domain Henry and Eleanor had made, the product of four generations of ferocious determination, courage, hard work, and sheer luck, was itself a monster. In addition to ruling all of England, their hereditary symbol of golden lions would come to be unfurled across half of modern-day France. Brittany, Maine, the Aquitaine, Touraine, Gascony, Anjou, Normandy. We think of Henry as an English king, but his lands were more French than they were English. The royal couple themselves were half French on Henry's side and entirely French on Eleanor's. They both were more comfortable in their continental lands than they were on the north side of the Channel. Whether by choice or necessity, they spent more time in France than they ever did in England. It's unlikely either of them spoke 12th century English, a low-class speech, although both were fluent in French, Latin, and even the liquid accents of Eleanor's Aquitaine. Their immense possessions brought Henry power and wealth beyond that of any European rival, making the Plantagenets, sworn liegemen of the French king, in reality constant rivals when it came to control of the territory we now call Western France. The battle lines were drawn, Capets against Plantagenets, the great lords beneath them assessing their options for the most promising alliances. Louis Capet, fathering nothing but daughters, stripped of the Aquitaine, was not a happy man in those days. He turned to the solace of a pilgrimage to Compostela, one carefully planned to avoid any contact with Plantagenet borders. His religious devotion was unquestionable, but the trip also had a more worldly purpose, since it produced a new wife, another dark-eyed teenaged import from the south, this time Castile. He must have yearned to escape his reputation as the supreme cuckold of Europe, but fate would scoff at him again, delivering more baby girls. Twelfth-century kings did not spend many hours cutting ceremonial ribbons. In England alone, Henry had a full lifetime of work ahead of him. His island kingdom was surrounded by frightful, screaming warriors who enjoyed the solid heft of battle shields the size of wagon wheels. The Scots, the Irish, the Welsh, glaring across his borders. His own barons were sworn to him, of course, but barons were remarkably fluid when it came to seductive opportunity. Some of them thought they'd make quite a fine king of England themselves. He also had the tatters of the recent anarchy to mend, not to mention powerful churchmen who perhaps cared for Rome more than London. As for his French rivals for his lands on the continent, 
they would go to war with him as reliably as the rotation of the seasons. Above all, Henry Plantagenet, by grace of God King Henry II of England, Duke of Normandy, Duke of Aquitaine, and Count of Anjou, had to find a way to bring villages, market towns, castles, ports, knights, priests, merchants, bishops, sheriffs, peasants, noblemen, and city dwellers into some coherent whole. This isn't to say that Henry thought of his kingdom as a modern ruler would. He himself didn't even have a name for it all. Sealing regal documents with a thorough, if unwieldy, Rex Angolorum, Dux Normanorum et Aquitanorum et Comes Andegavorum. During his reign, there would never be a single system across his lands for collecting taxes, punishing murderers, recruiting soldiers, marketing crops, or much of anything else. But people utterly tired of warlords and war wanted this new king to bring order. The comforting stability that would permit crops to be harvested, houses to stand, babies to live. One ode, written at Henry's coronation, hopefully prophesied, Then shall beam forth in England's happier hour, justice with mercy and well-balanced power. The chronicler William of Newburgh was even more specific, writing that after the miseries they had endured, people hoped for better things from their new monarch, especially as he gave signs of prudence, resolution, and a strict regard for justice. The people were behind Henry, and he had the ambition to make good on so much robust promise. He knew what he had, and he was sure of what he could do. While we might not always like it, we are so accustomed to living within a government that we forget there were long stretches when the very idea of it barely existed. It might sound appealing to those galled by the weight of more government than they care for, but people are not happy without a center, at least not for long. Time and time again, some form of government is created by men trying to solve problems that plague them. In the wake of the anarchy's wide destruction, Henry set about to fix such things. If, in the process, he managed to press hard on nobles and the church, he could live with it. Henry worked from three capitals, London, for his English lands, Rouen, the old capital of the Normans, on the Seine between Paris and the Channel, and Poitiers, the key city of the Aquitaine, Eleanor's home. He would incessantly be on the move between the three, but Rouen, where his formidable mother now lived in her retirement, was a favorite. We don't know if Henry loved Matilda as we moderns think a son loves a mother. One historian may have it right, that this mother and son were more like two generals than parent and child. Fifty years old by the time her son became king, Matilda was imperial, imperious, battle-hardened, taught to be cunning, often disappointed by life and rarely loved. 
it's a personal history unlikely to yield a sunny woman brimming with maternal warmth. But her devotion to her son's destiny was absolute, and she could give him advice honed by thirty years on the front lines of medieval royalty. Treat men like hawks, she supposedly told him. Feed them just barely enough and watch them stay close to his hand, dependent on his goodwill, easily controlled. Her hard-won skills did not go unappreciated by the new king. He would routinely seek her out as confidant and advisor. We are people more attuned to the emotional temperatures of maternity, so we probably find such an arrangement sadly lacking. It scarcely matters. They suited each other very well, as they would throughout her life, and she would live for another fifteen years. Matilda was so very like her daughter-in-law, smart, beautiful, resourceful, and determined, a great heiress and a queen, married off to make the dynastic dreams of old men come true, a triumphant survivor who was a decade older than her husband. Her son Henry might like to sleep with whores, but he could recognize and appreciate great women. He would often have Eleanor serve as his regent when he was somewhere else, and he was often somewhere else. As for Eleanor, she had traded Paris for London, one a city of university students and churchmen, the other emerging from years of war and war damage, but alive with possibilities for making money. England had been starved, burned, and pummeled for two decades, but with peace finally at hand, trade could begin again. Goods heaped across the docks on the Thames. Wool, linens, tin, furs, horses, beef, lumber, wine, iron, leather, kettles, silver, charcoal, dried fish, rope, parchment, salt, firewood, beer, and news came and went, changed form, got bought, got stolen, got sold, and produced showers of money. Clumsy little ships made of wood waited at London's docks for favorable winds to take them to the seas, crewed by illiterate seamen who stewed naked in the summer and broke icicles off their eyebrows in the winter. Every nation under heaven delights in London, wrote one contemporary Londoner, preening himself on his hometown, which we will rejoin next time. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Knapp. Thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again February 5th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me. Until next time, thank you for listening.